Welcome back to the Christian Mysticism Podcast, where we explore the fascinating history of Christian mysticism from the early days of the church until today. I'm Alberto de la Cruz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Carlos Ayer, the T. Lawrence Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. Well, we had a great time in the last episode talking about your new book, and one character from there stood out, and that's who we're going to be talking about today, St. Joseph of Cupertino. So why don't you tell us a little bit about St. Joseph? Yeah, St. Joseph uh, was born in 1603, and he died in 1663. So that's his, his lifespan. He was born just as the scientific revolution was taking off. Uh, no pun intended. <laughs> and uh, he spent much of his life in mystical ecstasy, and most of those mystical ecstasies took him up in the air. He was the greatest levitator of all time. Quite an anomaly. He wasn't an exact contemporary of Isaac Newton, but their lives did overlap by a few decades. So they could have, conceivably, if their lives had taken different paths, run into each other. And one has to wonder what would have ensued because uh, Joseph was older than Isaac Newton. So by the time Isaac Newton would have gotten to see him, he was already a bona fide levitator. And his life history is very interesting. For one thing, unlike most of the other mystics that we have talked about, he wrote very little. He left behind very few poems and a few other written pieces, but not much. And he never sat down to, as Teresa of Avila did, for instance, to explain or try attempt to explain to others what was going on during all these ecstasies of his. So in that respect, he's very different. And he counts as a mystic, of course, because of the continual ecstasies that he was showered with. And an unlikely mystic, too. And let's, let's begin at the beginning, his birth. He was orphaned at a very early age. His father died. His mother raised him. And he was not, by any accounts, a bright boy. As a matter of fact, could be said that he was pretty much the village idiot, Copertino. And the nickname that his neighbors gave him was Open Mouth, Boca Aperta. Apparently, he walked around with his mouth open very frequently. But from a very early age, he was very devout and uh, would spend a lot of time in church praying. He was very, very interested in, in joining the Franciscan order. Uh, he had an uncle who was a Franciscan. But his first attempt uh, ended in failure. They gave him the simplest tasks that could be found for him at a Franciscan monastery, and he continually flubbed everything he took on. So they let him go. And then he tried again to join and was refused entrance to the Franciscans. Finally, thanks to his uncle, he was admitted to the Franciscans. But they gave him the meanest of tasks. And by mean, I, I don't mean that they were being mean to him, but they were pretty low tasks like, you know, cleaning out the stables. And he was very happy with his simple chores. And he, he got a little more proficient at completing the tasks assigned to him. And then that's when he started to go into these mystical ecstasies that took him up in the air. Before we get into that, we've mentioned St. Joseph of Cupertino in a I believe in a couple of other episodes and the whole topic of open mouth boca perta has come up and, you know, being the village idiot in that era, when you joined a, a monastery and became a priest, were there academic requirements and in, in terms of study, I would imagine. So yes, if you were being trained to be a priest, yes. There were academic requirements, but there were, um, you know, just men who joined Franciscans and other orders who did not go for the priesthood, and they didn't have to receive much of an education. Many monasteries and convents had men and women in them who, you know, they joined the life of prayer of their community, of course, the communal life of prayer, but they were assigned simple tasks. And that's the way that most monasteries were organized. There was a certain percentage of the males in their monasteries who were priests. 
But in many cases, it was a minority of them who were ordained. But in the case of Joseph's life, you see, there's a very interesting turn that puts him on the path to priesthood, even though it seemed that it would be closed off to him. He was barely literate when he entered. But what happened was that, you know, he began to levitate sometimes in public during processions and started attracting attention. But within his own community, he was still, you know, carrying out all of these very simple tasks. And one day, a Franciscan superior came to visit his community. And he noticed how within his community, he was being treated poorly by his own brethren. And he also noticed that the Franciscan in charge of the community was very proud of himself. So, to teach the head of this community a lesson in humility, he ordered him to train Joseph for the priesthood. (laughs) And it was rough going for a while. Joseph tried. Joseph tried his best. And he was then up for uh, lower orders to be ordained a deacon. And he was very nervous because he barely knew any passages in all of the Bible. He didn't know the ins and outs of theology. He had only memorized one passage out of the entire Bible, and he was praying really hard. And the examiner, as an oral exam, he was going down the line, and Joseph was at the end of the line, and he was running out of time. So by the time he got to Joseph, he didn't have time to ask very many questions. So he only asked him one question. And the question had to do with that one passage that he knew. So he was able to pass the exam. And something very similar happened later when he was being examined to be ordained for the priesthood. Again, the examiner ran out of time and just, he passed. So for this reason, Joseph is considered the patron saint of exam takers. And the prayer goes something like, St. Joseph Cupertino helped me. With this upcoming exam, please let it be that I am examined only on those things that I know. (laughs) And that the examiner runs out of time. Yes. Yeah. So he ended up being ordained a priest, even though his knowledge of, you know, formal theology was pretty sketchy. And even though he was still kind of a bumbler, right? But everybody around him was amazed by his levitations. And as, as what happened back then in the early 17th century, there was always a fear that if somebody levitated or you know exhibited some of these physical phenomena of mysticism that we've discussed before, that it could be due to demonic influence. So he was denounced to the Inquisition, and he had to go to the Inquisition in Naples, the big city. Actually, at that time, Naples was the biggest city in Europe with more inhabitants than any other city in Western Europe. Bigger than Rome, for sure. So he goes to Naples, and he's investigated by the Inquisition, and they clear him. He also levitates there, you know, in front of lots of people in Naples, and is taken to see the Pope, Urban VIII. And as soon as he sees the Pope, he goes up in the air, goes over, above the Pope's head, and the Pope supposedly said, if this man dies before I do, I will testify at his canonization inquest that he rose above my head. But a decision was made not to send him back to Copertino, which he would have loved, because he he was very happy being near his hometown, being near his mother. But they sent him instead to Assisi, to one of the biggest largest, most important Franciscan communities in the world at that time. And he spent a good number of years there, levitating constantly and attracting a lot of attention. And the Franciscans there received all sorts of requests from very important people. They wanted to come and see Joseph. So he was becoming not only a great attraction, but also a great distraction to the Franciscan community he was beginning to eclipse St. Francis himself in significance. And no surprise, they moved him again. And, you know, to cut to the end of the story quickly, because there are a lot of details that we can cover 
later as we take up other issues. He was moved again to a location that was more remote, but he attracted great crowds and he was moved yet again. And then the same thing happened. And third and final time, he was removed to a Franciscan community in northern Italy, in Osimo, which was about the remotest one they could find for him. And to make matters even more severe for him, I mean, you keep moving this man around, and usually he was given no warning that he was about to be moved. You know, someone would just show up and say, okay, time to go. But Joseph was very obedient, and he followed. And the last 10 years of his life in Osimo, he was basically shut up in his cell, his rooms. So he had a suite of two rooms. One room was uh, turned into a chapel with an altar where he said mass by himself. And the other was the room in which he slept and did everything else. He was allowed out only once a week on Sunday to um, attend mass with his brethren. And, you know, one has to ask, what's going on here? Why is this, this man being shunted to ever more remote locations? And why does he have to end up living like a prisoner? The answer given at the time was that, well, it had two sides to it, the answer. The answer was, he was too great a distraction. The flip side of that is so many people wanted to see him that his superiors didn't want him to have to spend so much of his time dealing with visitors. You know, the opinion on this is that, yes, they might have had his best interests in mind, but he was just too much. <laughs> he was just too much. You couldn't, you couldn't have, you know, hundreds of people streaming through a Franciscan monastery consistently watching this man go up in the air. And the community had other things to do, and he had other things to do. Joseph did. Ultimately, he was given time to be as constantly ecstatic as possible. I wonder if the fact that he was, for lack of a better term, uh, apparently intellectually challenged and probably was not very articulate, I wonder if someone who's doing such incredible feats that people want to talk to him and he probably could not express himself would come across as the village idiot. I wonder if that had anything to do with them not wanting him to be, you know, yeah. the face of that monastery of, of the church. I think that maybe initially that might have been one of the reasons. But again, let's before I go any further, keep in mind, all we know is what was written about him, people who knew him, and people who encountered him. So, But what we have from those records, he developed a facility to delve into extremely complicated theological subjects, most of which were about his ecstasies and about what it's like to you know, encounter God. And this is very common, actually. It's a common trait in so many mystics who were poorly educated, that they acquire, it's called divine knowledge, by experience rather than by study. And, you know, there, there's probably a, some amount of exaggeration that went on for those that, that wrote his life, his hagiographers. But they write that, yeah, yeah, he continually, continually amazed everyone who was very learned, who came to talk to him later in life. As his life progressed, he kept getting more and more illumined, let's say, and could handle these questions. But there aren't very many accounts of him being questioned. You know, one would expect some kind of constant grilling of Joseph. And no, it wasn't constant. It was uh, periodic and with long time spans in between. But he grew in wisdom. This is also part of the story of the father of Christian monasticism, St. Anthony of the Desert. He too was not very well educated and ended up holding debates with the wisest philosophers in Alexandria, Egypt. And they were all amazed too at his knowledge of divine things. So I think the fact that so many people were requesting to see him and so many of these people who requested to see him were very important political figures as well as, you know, ecclesiastical figures, that it, it was a great burden on his superiors and his fellow Franciscans, because it's like walking through landmines, you know. How do you say no to someone 
who is very, very important in the church or in, in secular politics, extremely delicate, because they couldn't, they couldn't say yes to everyone or else they would have spent most of their time handling guests because it has to be kept in mind that when one of these very important guests arrives, they have to be treated according to their rank and all their privileges. It's a great burden on any monastery. Uh, for instance, while in Assisi, there are two individuals who came to see him who were extremely important. One was the Spanish Viceroy in Italy. At that time, Spain ruled all of Southern Italy and Sicily, and also Milan up north. The Spanish Viceroy was second in significance to the King of Spain. When he showed up with his wife, and a, as, as they always did, a huge retinue of court people, all oh, the Franciscans had to turn the place upside down to accommodate him in the lifestyle to which he was accustomed, along with all of those who had accompanied him to Assisi. And then what happened then was, was very funny because the women in the viceroy's entourage, especially his wife, were very, very, very interested, very keen on seeing Joseph levitate. But what happened was uh, kind of funny. He came in to the chapel where the women were waiting for him. He came in through a side door, and immediately he, he saw an image of the Virgin Mary that he was very devoted to. And he flew straight from that doorway up to this image. And the viceroy's wife fainted. <laughs> Had to be revived with smelling salts. The other important visitor who came to see him during that time, that is, for the reasons I'm about to explain, more significant even than the Spanish viceroy, was a German prince. Johann Friedrich, who was Duke of Saxony. Saxony is where Martin Luther started his Reformation. This Duke was Lutheran, and yet he had heard of Joseph and came down to Assisi and wanted to see him. And it's not clear why Johann Friedrich was traveling through Italy. I mean, Lutheran Dukes usually did not do this. And for a Lutheran Duke to be allowed to visit, a levitating Catholic saint, that's also a bit weird. So my take on it is that Duke Johann Friedrich was already kind of thinking of maybe becoming Catholic. But the end of the story is, as uh, almost anyone could guess, that when he saw Joseph levitating, that was it. He decided to convert. And not only him, not only Johann Friedrich, but also some members of his retinue ended up converting to Catholicism after seeing Joseph Levitate. And one of them, who one of, one of the members of the retinue, said something like this, and I, I don't remember his phrasing verbatim, but I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like, damn this place, I was doing just fine till I came here. <laughs> My conscience was clear. I had no trouble with religion, but now I do because of this man. Cursed to be this land. But he converted to Catholicism, too, according to the story. But Queen Christina of Sweden, a very, very important monarch, asked to see him, and she was never given permission. And by the way, Queen Christina ended up converting to Catholicism, too, later. She left the throne. She stepped down from the throne and moved to Italy and lived the rest of her life as a, a Catholic, very influential, very wealthy Catholic in Rome. So Joseph had the power to amaze people and convert them. Obviously, hundreds, if not thousands of people, according to the stories, saw St. Joseph levitate and, and fly around. But I think it's important we also note that some very prominent and influential people whose credibility and, and standing in society was of the utmost importance also saw him do this, and I assume testified to that fact. Oh, yeah. That's immensely important. That should not be overlooked. Yeah, we're not talking about, you know, peasants in the field seeing uh, Joseph levitate or only Franciscans seeing him levitate. No, he's seen by all kinds of lay people, 
and lay people who have positions of power. And also uh, by bishops and cardinals. And Pope Urban. And the Pope, Pope Urban VIII, yes. This is one of the things that convinced me that it was it was a good thing to pursue writing about Joseph of Cupertino as someone who exemplifies the possibility of impossible miracles as the testimonies, not, not just the number of testimonies, but the identity of so many of the people who gave those testimonies. And in addition to that, his levitations are so extreme, like the one flying over the heads over the Spanish viceroy and his wife and the whole, whole retinue. You know, most levitators don't do that. <laughs> Fly. And he stayed aloft in that occasion. He stayed aloft for quite some time. The narrative doesn't include this, but I have this image of Joseph still being in the air, suspended over these people while they're trying to revive the viceroy's wife. <laughs> there's, and there's actually a very beautiful engraving of this scene that shows him exactly like that, still aloft with the viceroy's wife having collapsed and trying to be revived by those around her. There's something comical. There's a comical dimension to some of his levitations. And the comical dimension, I think, doesn't detract from the veracity or ostensible veracity of the stories. I think it kind of adds to them because some of these feats that he performs in the air are fairly, not fairly, very unusual for any levitator. Well, I'm sure our listeners and, and I want to hear some more stories about that. But before we get into that, did he have any other mystical gifts other than the levitation? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, he was ecstatic quite a bit. And there were triggers that set him off, usually. All of them had some religious significance. You know, if he saw an image, especially of the Virgin Mary, he could just take off immediately. And hearing prayers, hearing other people pray, hearing sacred music could make him go up, and seeing certain things in nature could make him go up. Just the beauty of nature could make him go up. And he had a special liking, spiritual liking, for lamps. Lamps could set him off because of the figure of Christ as the Lamb of God. So one, one of the levitations that is among those that I think are somewhat comical is at one time he, he saw a lamb and, and had just grabbed it to hug it. So he, he was hugging it, and up he went with the lamb in his arms. And he went really high up into a tree, and he was up near the top of the tree with the lamb in his arms. And he stayed up there for quite some time. But then he came out of his ecstasy. He was stuck in the tree. They had to get a ladder, a tall ladder, <laughs> climb up, fetch him and the lamb to bring him back. But he also had, you know, in addition to these instantaneous levitations inspired by sounds, sights, and almost anything that he associated with the divine. He had some of these other physical gifts, physical, spiritual. Let's put a physical slash spiritual gifts that sometimes accompany the mystical life. You know, one is his ability to answer complex theological questions. Another was his ability to see things that were happening elsewhere without leaving. He not, I'm not talking about by location, but just simply knowing that something was, was happening. And one of these actually did involve by location, which is that when his mother was dying, he knew she was dying and bilocated to her deathbed because he had promised her years before, I'll come to you. And he did. But he could also, for instance, be aware of the deaths of others who were not there or somewhere else. Oh, so-and-so has just died. But he didn't have many of those other gifts on the list of physical phenomena mystics get. He did not receive the stigmata, for instance. Well, obviously, there are reports of him bilocating, levitating, being able to see or at least intuit that something has happened elsewhere. 
And like many saints and many mystics, he knew at the end of his life that death was near and knew almost exactly what day he was going to die. But no, the list is short. The list is short with Joseph of these physical gifts that mystics sometimes have. Maybe what he liked in gifts of mystical phenomena, he more than made up for in his levitations. I mean, oh. we, we call him an extreme levitator. He definitely is extreme. What are some of his other astounding levitations? Well, no one else that I have found before him or after him. He stands alone pretty much in the, the extreme ways in which he took to the air. He could stay up in the air for three, four, sometimes longer, three, four hours or longer, according to accounts. He frequently levitated while saying mass and would be ecstatic and suspended in the air for various lengths of time. But whenever he came out of his ecstasy, he would continue saying mass exactly at the same point where he left off. He rose to great heights, as high as the ceiling of the nave in the Basilica of St. Francis, which is very, very tall. It's one of the largest basilicas in Italy. He moved forward and backwards. He sometimes spun around. And the strangest thing of all, which has also been described of other mystics, but it happened very frequently with Joseph, was the fact that when he went into ecstasy, and he was in basically what is called, in medical terms, a cataleptic state. That means you stiffen up in whatever position you, you are when you enter this cataleptic state. And you're so rigid that when people try to, like, for instance, move your arms or open your fingers out if your hands are clenched, nobody can. You're just like frozen solid. Well, this happened to him very often. And as also happened to other mystics who went into ecstasy, you know, their brethren or sisters, if we're talking about nuns and monks both, would prick them with needles to see if they would respond. Or they would light candles and put the candles like really close to their eyes to see if they were blank. But no, Joseph would not respond to any of this. The same happened with Maria de Agreda and Teresa of Avila. But the more amazing part of all of this is that with Joseph, whatever clothing he was wearing, of course, his Franciscan habit, the folds of the cloth would also freeze up. And it didn't matter if he was like literally flying, the vestments wouldn't move. Or if he leaned one way or the other, the vestments just remained as stiff as a board with no change whatsoever. It's almost like he was going into another dimension, like freezing in this dimension and going yes. into another. Yeah. And the fact that he could be in this situation, right, suspended in the air, in one stiff position, his clothing also stiff, for several hours, and then come out of this state. And for instance, if he was saying Mass, he knew exactly where he had left off in saying Mass. And would say the next word that was he was supposed to say that he didn't say <laughs> because he went into ecstasy. So as a suspension, you can say, yeah, he was suspended in more ways than one. He was suspended in the air. He was suspended in time. And the clothing was also suspended along with him. I know you mentioned he didn't write much, but did any of his hagiographers or anyone who spoke to him about this, did he ever explain what was going on during these minutes or hours that he was in this state? No, very, very few details. You know, just that he was with God and it was wonderful, but he can't explain it. And in some of his poems, they read a little bit like love poems, very simple love poems, perhaps the kind uh, a child might write. He has one, I remember, which, which has the, the line, Tira mi la su. Tira mi la is pull me there, above. Tira mi la su. As a matter of fact, the Italian dessert tiramisu means exactly this, pull me up. <laughs> Tira mi la su, because that's where I want to be. Pull me up, God. 
pull me up. That's where I want to be. I don't want to be down here. I want to be up there with you. That's where I want to be. So it sounds a lot like what Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross also say in their poetry, except, you know, it's much simpler. But no, he doesn't give very many details. And not much is made of it, interestingly enough. Hagiographies are texts that are written to convince the reader that the person who's the subject of the text was a saint. So they tend not to go into anything negative. They stress the positive. But aside from the fact that he was early, early on suspected of, of perhaps uh, being demonically influenced, no, for the rest of his life, no, no one made much of a fuss about his levitations or his, let's say, it wasn't reluctance on his part to explain what was happening. It was just that he said, I, I just simply, I cannot explain it. But he, was, he knew he was somewhere else during that time. And by the way, now that we're talking about this, I just, I just remembered that there's a detail. Sometimes the description of his coming down from an ecstasy is that, yeah, he seemed a little befuddled. And also he was very shy and would kind of try to, after he came down, let's say he finished saying mass, he would try to like slink away from those who had seen him as quickly as possible. So he was not a talker. You know, it's not like he came down from, his ecstasies and immediately started hugging everyone saying, oh, you can't believe what just happened. <laughs> Let me tell you about what, what I just saw or what I experienced. No, it's just the opposite. He refrained from speaking about these things, which I think is fairly common. You know, someone this past week asked me about how many mystics I thought there were in Christian history and perhaps how many sort of like Joseph of Cupertino we don't know. Joseph of Cupertino is an exception, and he's well known for being an exception. But we don't know how many monks and nuns had experiences like this within their communities, and their communities never talked about it. Of course, would have talked about it amongst each other within the walls of their community. But if they were cloistered, perhaps the, the word never got out. Hey, there's a nun over here. <laughs> By the way, there's a nun over there. You know, she uh, she levitates. She's a mystic. And we don't know because many of them, they had mystical experiences like Joseph, perhaps did not have the ability to write about them or to explain them to others. So we really don't know. This is a question I probably should have asked you in our last episode regarding your book, They Flew, The History of the Impossible. Levitation, I mean, it's a great, it's a wondrous thing and, and an incredible miracle. But in your studies and, and your research, what's the purpose of it? It, it kind of seems like a, a useless miracle. Well, as far as practicality is concerned, yes, I think you could say it's, it serves no purpose other than to manifest in a very peculiar way supernatural power power over the laws of nature. I mean, that in, in itself is a purpose, extreme a sign as one can think of, of a supernatural intervention in the natural world. So naturally, it calls attention not just to the supernatural power, but to the person to whom this is happening. It enhances their status as a holy person or as a special person. And actually, it's because of that that some mystics like St. Teresa of Avila and Maria de Agreda begged God to stop levitating them. <laughs> Please stop. Take this away from me. This is calling too much attention to me. It's going to make people think that I am uh, not in the least bit humble, that, you know, that I'm getting carried away and thinking I'm special. I don't want anyone to think I'm special or better than others. And in the case of both of them, Teresa of Avila and Maria de Agreda, the levitations uh, did stop, according to them. But in the case of Joseph, this is not something he ever asked to be taken away from him. He went with it. And boy, he not only went with it, but he, got, he carried it, no pun intended, to great heights. So what purpose does it serve? It's not like uh, bilocation, for instance. Most bilocations 
there's a very pragmatic reason this person goes from being in place A to place B. There's something going on at place B that needs to be done, right? Levitation is not that way. In the case of Joseph, however, there was one case where he actually performed a healing while levitating. But that was unusual. It was a, a young nobleman, Italian nobleman, who was considered insane. He definitely was mentally ill. And his family was just heartbroken and wanted him healed. So they took him to Joseph thinking, well, you know, maybe he can cure him. So Joseph put his hand on the young man's head, at grabbing his hair, and at that instant went up, lifting the young man up in the air with him. So he's got him grabbed by the hair. And then they spun around a few times in the air. And when they came down, the young man was healed. He regained his sanity. That's the story. That's the narrative. A miracle within a miracle, right? A healing within the levitation. But it wasn't the levitation that healed the young man. It was Joseph's intercession, or as any anyone around him, and he himself would say, he had not performed this miracle. This miracle was performed by God. Just happened to be through him, right? But God is the author of the miracle, not Joseph. Perhaps one could say that levitations, unlike, as you mentioned, bilocation and seeing visions such as St. Hildegard of Bingen, was able to put them down and on paper and provide insight. Perhaps levitation is not so much the actual mystical experience, but a byproduct of it, that this mystical phenomena that's being experienced by the person produces this levitation. Well, that's actually the explanation given uh, for it, that it's not, it's not something that anyone intentionally brings on. It is a side effect of ecstasy. And I think we, we might have covered this before in the case of St. Teresa. She's the, she's the one who provides the, the most detailed explanations of what she thinks is going on. And she thinks that what's going on is that the soul is pulled up towards heaven, towards God in heaven, and the body follows. But of course, that is a cosmological view that it doesn't square with the Copernican universe, or the universe as we now understand it through astrophysics, right? Heaven is not necessarily up, right? Heaven's another dimension. But whatever it is, Teresa thought the soul gets pulled up. And she said, sometimes it feels like the soul is being pulled from the body with great force, she says. And the soul comes out of the body as quickly as a bullet does from a gun. And the body follows. And that's one of the reasons it can't be resisted. In another passage, she says, it's like a great giant is under you, pushing you up. And you know you're going up, and you can't do anything about it. But Joseph doesn't have any descriptions like that. He doesn't know. But it is definitely considered a side effect. It's a gift. And that's what St. Teresa called them. Mercedes. Mercedes a gift, a bonus. So in all these Latin American novels, like Hundred Years of Solitude, you have characters who bring on their own levitations. That's not how it is with Christian mystics and levitators, not at all. They do not bring it on. It happens to them. So basically, it's not something they could do at will. It's something that happens to them. That's right perhaps yeah. likely when they least expect it. Oh, yeah. In the case, you know, Joseph is so extreme about everything <laughs> that, you know, he has these, it's, I think it's fair to call them triggers that just bring it on. They bring it on. He can't help it, right? It's not like he said, says, oh, I'm going to, you know, no. it's just the sight of an image of the Virgin Mary immediately throws him into ecstasy. And the sight of a lamb hearing prayer hearing uh, hearing music, or seeing, for instance, this is probably one of his better-known levitations because there are so many paintings and engravings of this. When he was moved to his last monastery in Osimo, Osimo is near this shrine 
of the Holy House of Loreto. I'll explain in a minute. And when he got out of the carriage that had taken him there, he saw that church off in the distance. And uh, he said he also saw angels ascending and descending from the house. The house of Loreto is inside that church, that basilica. And up he went. Just the sight of that made him go up. The Holy House of Loreto, by the way, is one of the weirdest, absolute weirdest miracles claimed by the Catholic Church. The Holy House of Loreto is none other than the house in which Jesus lived in Nazareth, which was lifted from the Holy Land by angels when the Muslims took over and was taken all the way to present-day Croatia in the Balkans. And then as the Turks advanced some centuries later, it was moved again across the Adriatic Sea to Loreto. It was encased within a much larger church, and it was one of the most significant pilgrimage locations or, or pilgrimage magnets in late medieval and early modern Europe, and still is. Actually, there are a lot of Catholic institutions named and churches and chapels with the name Loreto attached to it. So this house of Loreto was never actually moved by humans? No, not according to the official narrative, no. And that's a certified miracle by the Catholic Church. Yes, yeah. And it's a certified pilgrimage site to which people flock still to this day. So that brings us to a completely different level of, you know, the impossible. <laughs> and Yeah, uh, that, that sounds like a whole episode. <laughs> yes. Yeah, although, you know, it's not really about mysticism because, you know, it's, it's a house. It's a building. I know, it's I a know. a structure. But that's why I said it was one of the weirdest. It might actually be the weirdest such relic, let's put it that way. And you have it within a much later building that was constructed around it. Before we get to the end of this episode, with all of the testimony from so many people, from so many prominent people and witnesses, how does science grapple with someone like St. Joseph of Cupertino? Yeah, well, as of late, let's say the last three decades or so especially, the discoveries that are being made at the largest cosmological level and the smallest, you know, in astrophysics and in subatomic particles point to the probability of the existence of other dimensions. And there are many scientists, some of them very reputable, who have begun to stress possibility that we actually don't live in the universe, but that there are multiple universes, multiple dimensions, and that these multiple dimensions probably infinite in themselves. So if you think of the universe as vast as it is, the universe we can see with our eyes and with telescopes, and I, I don't know if you've seen it or if our listeners have seen the image from the James Webb telescope that shows all the galaxies that are billions of light years away and they look like they're right next to each other they're so distant and and this is infinite and we don't know what's beyond them well think an even a vaster infinity of dimensions which some scientists are taking very seriously and there's a book i can recommend to our listeners the author is christopher white and the title is other worlds. And it details how it is that science is coming to the gradual realization of this existence of multiple dimensions and how science actually, these discoveries in science actually have a, a religious edge to them and are affecting religion and are sometimes affecting the way that some thinkers are writing about religion. So, for instance, What's going on with uh, Joseph of Cupertino and his vestments not moving and his ability to instantly, upon uh, getting out of his ecstasy, to remember where he was in saying the Mass and utter the, the word that was next to come, seems to point to a suspension. Literally, again, that word, suspension. <laughs> suspension, yeah. He's suspended for sure, but it's also a suspension of space and time. 
and a suspension of the laws of gravity. So just a couple of months ago, a scientist in Wales in the United Kingdom emailed me. He had gotten a hold of an advanced text of my book, and he was very excited when he discovered this little detail about Joseph, that you know his vestments didn't move, and that he could pick up right where he left off. He was excited because he said he has a theory about levitation, and he thinks levitation is possible, that it is something that does happen. But his theory is that it is a suspension of space-time. In other words, whoever is levitating is outside of space-time. And while they're levitating in ecstasy, even if it's for hours, to them, no time has elapsed. And they are outside of normal, what we consider normal physical space, which is why the vestments don't move. I found this fascinating. And I don't know how many of our listeners are aware of this, but just a couple of years ago, two teams of astrophysicists, one in Cambridge, the UK, University of Cambridge, and another at Caltech in Pasadena, California, were seriously investigating, trying to find out if we live in a simulation or not. Are we a simulation? Sort of like if anyone has seen the film The Matrix. There are two films, actually, right, that come to mind when dealing with this question of the suspension of space-time or, or simulations. One is The Matrix, in which the main character discovers that the world he thinks is real is not the real world, that there's another world that's the real world, and that his life has all been a simulation. And the other film is Interstellar, which is about space travel, and it involves actually taking very seriously one of Einstein's theories about space-time and the relativity of time. So in this movie Interstellar, main character goes to some distant planet, and while he's gone, he doesn't feel the passage of time, and it doesn't affect his body. But back on Earth, decades pass, because time is relative, according to Einstein. Theory of relativity. I'll throw in a third movie, and I don't know if you've seen this movie or not, but it has to do with where you were talking about the multiple dimensions or multiple universes. And this is sort of like a, a multiverse. And this film is from, from last year in 2022, and it's called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. It's an incredibly entertaining film and very well done, especially when huh. you consider the complex notion of multiple universes all existing simultaneously with the same people mm -hmm. in different universes. Yes. And in the movie, they're crossing back and forth all over the right. place. And it's, you'd think it'd be impossible to keep up, but the movie's so well done. It really provides a, a very interesting idea about the whole different universes and different dimensions happening because mm -hmm. not only is it the same people exist in other universes, they're not necessarily humans. Uh, they have different traits and in the other universes they have uh, their lives going a different path. But it really is entertaining. If any of our listeners or, or you, Carlos, haven't seen it, I, I highly recommend it. It's, yeah, I've been it's wanting a very to see interesting it. movie. I've been wanting to see it, just haven't had the time. I think I had to watch it on pay-per-view, but it's worth the whatever they charge. It's it's that good. The the movie yeah. is really that that entertaining. Almost as entertaining as our episode has been today. And I think St. Joseph of Cupertino is a fascinating character that our listeners can learn more about if you get a copy of Carlos's new book, They Flew, The History of the Impossible which if you look in our show notes, you'll be able to find a link where you can purchase a copy. So if you haven't done it already, make sure you click and get yourself a copy of the book. After Joseph of Cupertino, who do you have for us for the next? Well, I was thinking that perhaps uh, since some of these phenomena we discussed today or dealt with appear from very early on in Christian history, uh, I thought that maybe we could turn our attention to St. Anthony of the Desert, 
who was fourth century and is is actually the, the archetype or the role model, the role model for Western as well as Eastern Christian mystics. Well, we haven't gone that far back in a while. No, perhaps because we're, we're talking about multiple universes, a suspension of time and all of this, and this sort of quasi-scientific uh, understanding of the relativity of time. Yes, why not go back to the beginning? And it, it will shed light on why Christian mysticism developed the way it did. In many ways, even though Anthony, like Joseph, left behind very little that he had written himself. As a matter of fact, I don't know of any text written by Anthony of the Desert still had an enormous influence because others read about his life and others wanted to be like him. And one of those was uh, St. Augustine, who desperately wanted to be like St. Anthony of the Desert. Well, sounds like you got another great episode in store for us. Yeah, I hope so. Um, and I know so. I shouldn't say I hope so. I know it'll be great. <laughs> Scratch all that. <laughs> well, thank you for another wonderful episode, Carlos, for all your insight and history on St. Joseph of Cupertino. And until the next time, thank you for listening to the Christian Mysticism Podcast. If you have any questions for Dr. Ayer, you'll find our email address in the show notes. Just send it over and we'll try to answer it in a future episode. And don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast. <music>